Well, good morning, church. Uh, I am Pastor Mike. I serve as the family pastor here at the field and I have the privilege today of taking us through a vital question. And that question is, what is the relationship of the individual to the law of God? What is the relationship of the individual to the law of God? Now, again, if this is your first time, normally what you can expect from the field church is systematic exposition of a book of the Bible. But as we just finished 1 Thessalonians, we're taking a break. We've got about four weeks uh, where you'll be hearing from myself and other pastors here on different topics in the Bible. And I've got this week and next week to address this question. This week, we're talking about it from an individual perspective. And next week, we're going to talk about it from a societal perspective. What is the Christian's relationship to the government will be the topic for next week. But today, we're looking at the question, what is the relation of the individual to the law of God? There's much confusion in the church today concerning the answer to this question. Believers are sometimes told that the gospel of Christ leads to freedom from the law. But what does that mean? Is it correct? Are believers truly free from the law? Does God's holy law have absolutely no bearing on the life of a believer? Do the promises of the new covenant written in Christ's blood mean that we're free to do whatever we want without consequence? What effect should the indwelling Holy Spirit have on an individual? And furthermore, what bearing does God's holy law have on a society, on a nation? Is it binding upon governments? Are all people all over the world supposed to be under this theonomic government where we legislate according to the Old Testament? Or is the job of the church at large to call government leaders to account to submit to God's law? You can see all of the implications of this vital question. What is the relation of the individual to the law of God? Rightly understanding this relationship between the individual and God's law is vitally important as believers if we are to fully appreciate what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. I want you to listen to this quote from a book that Pastor Sam's reading. It's called Homiletics and Hermeneutics. Quote, law and gospel represent a dynamic relationship, a necessary tension, not mutually exclusive alternatives. The law is not a straw man argument made irrelevant by the subsequent gospel. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill Law and gospel are both true, and they are both needed to represent the truth, yet they may seem contradictory. To resolve the tension between the two, faith is needed. By holding law and gospel adjacent to one another, faith may find a foothold. And he goes on to say in the same book, law and gospel are not binary terms like bad or good. They're not strict opposites. They are intertwined. The law is holy, righteous, and good, and it is a gift. It is a route to holiness. A warning is often a helpful gift, even if we still must obey it. As a command, the law strikes humans initially as a burden, perhaps even as impossible. When a drug addict is told to quit using drugs, the instruction is good, yet if that is all that is given, it's not enough to save. 
The addict might be pointed in the right direction, but is still hopelessly struck. Law accompanied by gospel, however, is empowerment through the Holy Spirit to make the required behavioral change. Both law and gospel are needed, end quote. And so again, over this Sunday and next, we're going to look into the scriptures in order to see the answers that scripture gives on this vital question concerning the individual's relationship to the law of God and how the gospel affects that relationship. This week, like I said, we're going to look at that question as it pertains to the individual person. And next week, we'll look at that same question as it pertains to society and more specifically governments as we look at Romans 13. But we need to understand this, that the gospel transforms the believer into a new creation and places that believer into an entirely different category. And therefore, the relation to the law of God and more importantly, to God himself fundamentally changes. And so we're going to be looking at the book of Galatians primarily, but we are going to start in a different section of the Bible. We're going to start in the book of Exodus. So I'll ask you to turn to Exodus chapter three. I provided an outline for today's sermon. It's three points with many sub points. You guys are laughing at me. <laughs> and I titled today's sermon, The Law the gospel, and our adoption as sons and daughters. The law, the gospel, and our adoption as sons and daughters. We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 3, starting at verse 13. But before I read it, let me lay down this first biblical axiom, this first self-evident truth that the Bible puts forward. It is this, the moral reality of the law exists because God exists. The moral reality of the law exists because God exists. Exodus chapter three, verse 13 and following. Then Moses said to God, behold, I am about to come to the sons of Israel and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they will say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Yahweh is I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. It is the name of God that he gave to his covenant people in the Old Testament that emphasizes the eternality and self-existence of God, of God. To fill out more of his character, let's turn to Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. Again, the axiom is that the moral nature of the law exists because God exists, and he exists eternally, and he is self-powered, if you will, self-existent. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, tell us about his nature and his character. It says, then Yahweh passed in front of him, Moses, and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. 
Make no mistake about it, that same God whom everyone likes to refer to as love is righteous and holy and does not wink at sin. So that's the subject of the law, or that's the contents of the law, rather, and it exists because God exists, but who are the subjects? Who Who is subjected to this moral reality? Well, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says that the image bearers who have been created in God's image are meant to bear that image rightly. And in Exodus 18, verse 4, God claims ownership of all the souls of those image bearers. He says, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. And the soul who sins will die. Therefore, from these two texts, we understand that being an image bearer means that God's moral nature has been communicated to us since he holds us accountable to his law. And this accountability is primarily felt through our conscience. Turn to Romans chapter 2 to see this. Romans chapter 2. God created us in his image He has communicated certain attributes to us, and he has not communicated others to us. But one of those attributes is a moral conscience. That conscience, of course, is fallen. But let's see how this conscience works in the life of an individual, starting at verse 12 of chapter 2 in the book of Romans. It says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law naturally do the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In that, they demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Did you catch that phrase where he says, the work of the law? What is the work of the law? Well, this doesn't mean that the law of God is written on the hearts of image bearers. No, that doesn't happen until Jeremiah 31 verse 33 comes into play, which says this, but this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh, when I will put my law within them and on their heart, I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You see, the apostle Paul is referring to Gentiles from all time. The work of the law does not mean that all people have the law of God written on their hearts. So what does this mean about the conscience? This means simply this, that the work of the law produces one of two things in a human being when they violate God's moral precepts. Number one, it either convicts the sinner as guilty, what I did was wrong, and we have an internal sense of that, or number two, it proves the individual as innocent regarding moral matters. No, I didn't violate that law. I didn't break that moral code, what have you. This conscience is a gift from God. It is a divine warning system, but it's fallen. And by and large, it operates according to a version of God's holy law in the minds of people. 
So the moral nature of mankind then derives its basis from our status as image bearers of that moral creator, everlasting God. The conclusion that we can draw from these truths then that the law exists because God exists, image bearers are held accountable to that law, but we're fallen and therefore the work of the law works in us to convict us of when we break it or to prove us innocent when we don't. The conclusions that we can draw from this is this, that fallen fallen man's morality is only righteous and just to the degree that it aligns with the law of God. It is only righteous and just to the degree that it, that it images or reciprocates or, or, or reflects that moral nature of God. And King David understood this in Psalm 51, verse 4, when he recounts his sin with Bathsheba. He said, against you and you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. It is interesting to note that moral man, or rather fallen man, can believe that he's being quite moral despite being in total violation of God's laws. Judges chapter 21, verse 25 tells us that in those days of Israel, there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This conscience can be taught that sin is actually acceptable. Our conscience can be taught that evil is actually good. And society then can perpetrate that teaching, that evil is good and good is evil, and we should punish good and reward evil. That's because our conscience has fallen. That's because it can be trained. In fact, it can even be seared. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Looking at verses 1 and 2. The word of God says, but the spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by the hypocrisy of liars who have seared, who have been seared in their own conscience. Just because we have a conscience doesn't mean it's leading us down the holy and righteous path. It can be Uh, misinformed. It can be taught that evil is good and that good is evil. In fact, you can get rid of the thing almost entirely by searing it. So the first two points, the first two biblical axioms that I want us to remember before we move on then are number one, the moral reality of the law exists because God exists. Therefore, it can never be removed or done away with in its entirety. To remove the law, to get rid of the law, To say it has no bearing on my life whatsoever would be to say that God doesn't care about how I live. And number two, those who are subject to this moral reality are all of his image bearers. That's everybody, non-believers and believers. All people are held accountable to the moral reality of God. The question we need to ask ourselves now is this, what does this moral reality require of us? which is my second subpoint, the law expressed. And to see this, let's turn to Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. What does the law require of people in general, non-believers and believers? 
Well, let's start with first, what does it require of Israel? Since that's the context that we're looking at, Deuteronomy is Israel's national constitution. And it was given by Moses on the plains of Moab on the eastern shore of the Jordan River directly before they entered into the land of Canaan. The they that I'm referring to is the second generation of Israelites that were delivered from being slaves to Pharaoh. And the book of Deuteronomy outlines how these individuals are to live now that they have been delivered from this bondage. Notice, this is very important for you to remember. This law was given after the deliverance of the Israelites. God did not give this law as a condition for deliverance. He didn't say, I will deliver you from slavery in Egypt if you obey my law. No, he delivered them first and then said, now that you've been delivered, here's how you are to live to reflect my image. So what does the law require of us then? Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting at verse 6. Follow along with me while I read verses 6 through 22. It says, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. And he goes on to delineate more of what we refer to as the Ten Commandments. We have the first table of the law expressed in verses 6 through 15, which delineate our relationship to God. It is a vertical emphasis on the first table of the law. The second table of the law, verses 16 through 21, which delineate a horizontal relationship between people. Notice, again, let me just say this at the outset. What does God say in verse uh, 9 and 10? He's going to punish those who hate him, and he's going to reward those who love him. This is what precedes the giving of the law. Loving God is what he is ultimately calling us to do, and loving other people. This is what the law requires of you. And this is also why Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The law demands that we love, and this love is expressed in total holiness and righteousness and in perfect obedience in heart and in deed. The Lord will judge our hearts. He will judge our hearts. First Samuel 16, verse 7 says, God sees not as man sees, for man lo looks at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. And James 2, 10 says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. And Romans 6, 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. So law has a very high standard, does it not? It's meant to be that way. It's designed to be that way. But the question that many people ask themselves when they begin to understand what the law requires, where it comes from, what its source is, and who its subjects are, they ask this question, why would God give his people a law that they just couldn't keep? Right? We've all asked that question. And I think that that's a flawed way to even think about it. I think that's a flawed way to think about the law. Remember, we said the law exists simply because God exists. He couldn't give us anything other than righteous, a righteous standard. He couldn't demand anything from his image bearers other than perfect holiness. 
because we're, we've been created as his representatives on earth. We fell, of course, but that's the first point we have to remember when we start to ask this question, why did he give the law? We also have to remember the context in which the first law was given. You guys know this. Back in the garden, chapter two, God said, Adam, you're free. You can eat from any of these trees. And I'm sure they were wonderful trees. But Adam, there's a line that I'm drawing, and it's in front of this particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're not allowed to eat from that tree. And when you do, and if you do, you will surely what? Die. You will go from being like this with me, Adam, to go to being like this with me, Adam. That's death in the Bible. That's the context in which the first law was given. Why is that significant? Because Adam's will wasn't in bondage to sin yet, and he still could not keep it. There was something in Adam and Eve, in their freedom of the will, that still desired to violate God's law. So if they couldn't do it, what makes you and I think we could do it? <laughs> With our wills that are in bondage to sin. The question that people should be asking is, what function does the law have? Not, why did he give us a law we couldn't keep? That's the wrong question to ask. Why did he give it at all? That's the question we need to ask. So let's look at that. And let's turn to Galatians chapter 3. And we'll be spending the majority of our time now in Galatians that we've laid down this fundamental biblical axiom that the law exists because God exists. And our relation to it as sinners is not a good one, <laughs> as we're going to see. So the question that we're looking at now is, what is the purpose of the law? In other words, what is the function of the law? Let's look at Genesis, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. Paul asked the same question. Why then the law, it says in verse 19? It was added because of trespasses, having been ordained through angels by the hand of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one person only, whereas God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, being shut up for the coming faith to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor unto Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. Let's work through these verses. Starting back up at verse 19, he says, why was the law added? Well, it was added because of transgressions or trespasses. What does this mean? This means clearly this, that the moral reality of the law existed from eternity past, but the expression of that that we read in Deuteronomy 5 clearly delineated what his nature requires of his image bearers. In other words, what does God require of you? It requires you to love him, to not kill anybody, to not commit adultery, to not steal. And if you break any of those things, you know how we find that out? Because the law was given. 
So its first function, then, it serves as judge. The law serves as judge by clearly revealing what sin is, by clearly illustrating the very actions and the very mindsets that separated us from God in the first place. God's law defines our shortcomings. And this forces all honest people to admit that they have fallen short of the glory of God. This forces all people to admit they are not keeping the law perfectly. This forces us all to admit that only God is holy and only God is righteous, not me. This is pride crushing. It flattens you before the holy throne of God. That's the function of the law and its first function. It judges you. It judges me. It shows me where I am wrong. And the result of someone realizing this, the result of someone realizing that they are smaller than a speck of dust when it comes to standing in the presence of a righteous God is, as I said, pride crushing. The law stands as the standard by which all lives will be evaluated And it is unambiguously clear. It continually repeats, thou shall not, thou shall not, thou shall not. Why? For I am the Lord God. Period. Paragraph. Notice what verse 22 says. Back down in our text. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In verse 23, but before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, being shut up, there's the same word again, for the coming faith to be revealed. This is an incredible picture that the Apostle Paul is painting. That word shut up is used of Peter's fishing net in Luke 5, 6. In other words, the scripture has said it, it, that the law is like a fishing net. It's God's fishing net that encapsulates everybody and begins to drag them to a particular location. Verse 23 says that it's held everybody in custody under the law. This is another amazing picture word that that the Apostle Paul is using under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It means literally to keep guard like a military sentinel, like a military guard. And it was used in secular Greek sometimes to describe military generals placing guards outside of a besieged city to keep the inhabitants of that city under attack from leaving. In other words, they were standing right at the door. If you tried to escape, boom, you're out. That's how the word of God expressed in the law functions. It hems you in and it squeezes that conscience. And it's meant to do one of two things. It's meant to judge first and foremost, and it's meant to drive you to a particular place. It's meant to drive you either to your knees or if you rebel, it's meant to drive you into this position here, a prideful rebellion against God's holiness. And you see, men hate this pressure. You need to understand this, church. Men hate this pressure. That includes you. That includes me before Christ. And if we're to be the church, we need to understand that if we're going to call people to account to repent from sin as defined in the law of God, men are going to hate you and they're going to hate me. 
Second Timothy chapter three says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Men hate this pressure. They hate being hemmed in. They hate being constricted and governed by a law that they do not get to vote on. Psalm 2, verses 2 through 3 say this. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed ones, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The world is chanting, let us rid ourselves of this law. Let us get rid of these fetters. Let us uh, deliver ourselves from the bondage of this righteous and holy God. The law has hemmed all of us in on all sides. We are before Christ caught in God's fishing net and we're being dragged, hopefully, to the throne of mercy. To the throne of mercy. To the throne of mercy. Where am I getting that from? Look at verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor unto Christ our tutor unto Christ so that we may be justified, so that we may be declared innocent by that righteous and holy God for all of the infractions that we have ever made. That word tutor is a very interesting word and it's fundamentally important to Paul's point that he's making in this section. Sometimes it's translated tutor, other times guardian, other times schoolmaster, but it refers to a slave whose duty was to take care of the estate master's child until adulthood. So you can imagine in Greco-Roman society, the people who are hearing this primarily, they would have understood this. But for you and I, it's a little bit farther removed. Imagine you have a, a wealthy individual in Greco-Roman society. He's got multiple children, and he has a large estate. So he's able to hire servants. Well, that word tutor is used of a very specific servant, and that servant does two things. Number one, strict training and behavior for the child of that estate master. That servant is a strict disciplinarian, first and foremost. And number two, that same servant provides guidance in daily life. Strict disciplinarian and guidance in daily life are all packed into that term that Paul uses as translated in the LSB from which I'm reading as tutor. And that's what Paul says the function of the law is. The function of the law is to be a strict disciplinarian upon the life of everybody. And it's also meant to guide you, as he says, unto Christ. As Chad said, we have to talk about the bad news in the good news. And that's the bad news, that God is righteous and we are not. And we must follow the path of this tutor to its intended endpoint, which is Jesus Christ. In context, what Paul is saying to these Galatians is that because they're desiring to be justified by following the law, they are actually regressing back to a state of spiritual immaturity. They want to go back to being under the tutor rather than remaining with the teacher, Jesus Christ. And that's the fundamental distinction that we have to make, lest you think I'm preaching justification by law, which I am not. 
they are seeking, these Galatians are seeking to use the law for a purpose that it was not intended to accomplish. The law was never intended to provide you with a righteousness that can save. It cannot do that. The law only judges and condemns if you continue to have high-handed rebellion against it. If the cry of your heart is what Psalm 2, verses 2 through 3 say, let us cast away these fetters of this holy God. Let us rid ourselves of this righteous one. The law is meant to discipline individuals and guide them to humbly seek God's mercy if they are willing to go there. If they are willing to humbly confess and repent and turn from worshiping themselves to worshiping Jesus Christ. So what is the relation of the non-believer to God and his law? It's this. The non-believer has been weighed in the balance and is found wanting. The non-believer has no righteousness apart from Christ. They only have one of two options. Continue to rebel or humbly confess, repent, and turn. Those are the two options. This is where the law is meant to take us. And that leads us to the second point in today's sermon. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 25 through 29, as we begin to understand, well, what is the relation of the believer to God's law? Verses 25 through 29 say this. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Through the gospel, the believer's relationship to God has fundamentally changed, and therefore the believer's relationship to his law has fundamentally changed. The gospel presents the relation of the believer to God and his law in an entirely different paradigm. Believers are no longer that prideful rebel. Believers are now called sons and daughters. The nakedness that we felt because of our shame before God has been covered. In verse 27, it says, for you are all baptized into Christ and you have been clothed with Christ. If you remember Genesis chapter three, after sin, after they believed in God, after the, the just punishment that God gave them, it says that Adam believed God, or it implies that he named his wife Eve and God killed an animal and clothed them with the skins of that animal. He took their fig leaves off, said, get rid of these things. They're not going to work with me. Let me provide you with clothing. The shame, the guilt, the nakedness that the law, the work of the law produces in the heart of the unbeliever can be covered by the clothing of Christ's righteousness. Verse 28, we're no longer defined and divided solely by these categories. We're not defined as Jews or non-Jews. We're not defined by whether or not we're slaves or free. We're not even defined by our biological sex, although none of those things go out of existence. It's unfortunate I have to make that clear nowadays. The point is you're not defined by those things. You're defined by the fact that you are Christ's. 
That is your identity as a son or daughter of the almighty God. Verse 29 says that we belong to Christ and we are heirs to the promises made to Abraham, of which we haven't fully unpacked because time does not permit. But you can go back and read it. The whole book of Galatians is built on the fact that Abraham received the covenant promises before he was circumcised. And, and, and circumcision was the quintessential mark of salvation as far as these Judaizers were concerned. And Paul says, when did he receive the inheritance? When did he receive the promises? Before or after circumcision? To which the answer is obviously before circumcision. So that doesn't save you. And so he makes the jump from Abraham to Christ to all those who believe in Christ. That inheritance is ours. The hope of heaven is ours. Romans 8 verse 9 describes us as no longer being in the flesh, but being in the spirit, assuming the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. He does not belong to him. The spirit of God is the instrument, is the person that must be dwelling within us. And he is the vehicle through which Christ's righteousness is then imputed to you and me. And that imputation will necessarily begin to produce a life that is practically righteous. Righteous by what standard? By the law standard. That's the relation, and that is the outcome of the law of the Spirit of God dwelling in our hearts. And so, turn with me now to Galatians 4 as we look at the final point in today's sermon. Life. What is life like as a child of God in the Holy Spirit? What does this mean for us? Well, it means freedom from, listen to this, the condemnation of the law. We are freed from the condemnation of the law. Galatians 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul is continuing that culturally appropriate uh, image that he's chosen to use, or illustration, rather. And he says in verse 1, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and stewards until the date set by the father. So also we, underline that in your Bible there, so also we, while we were children, were enslaved under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that, underline that as well, he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons." Paul's talking about redemption out of slavery and being adopted into God's family. As, as Pastor Chad read earlier from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, all people are by nature children of wrath and are following the prince of the power of the air. Turn with me just to John chapter 8 for just a moment. You have to understand this. John chapter 8, being adopted out of being adopted into God's family in a very real sense means that we are being taken out of another family. John chapter 8. And we need to look at... I'll find it. Verse 44. 
Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees who desired to kill him, said this, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. If you are outside of Christ, if you're not one who belongs to Jesus Christ, you have not been adopted into the family of God. And the Bible says that you are of the family of the devil. I was of the family of the devil if it weren't for God. And so that's the seriousness with which being adopted into God's family elucidates. Let's look back at verses one through two in chapter four of Galatians. Like I said, Paul continues this familiar example of the tutor. And what he's basically saying is that the child would eventually receive the father's estate only when he grew up to maturity or once he reached the date set by the father. This date was typically set after puberty since it was considered unwise to give an estate to an immature prepubescent child. Until the child reached the time set by the father, he essentially had the same legal rights as a slave until he was freed, or until, rather, he grew up. He wasn't freed from this legal status until he reached that date. That's what Paul's trying to say in verses 1 through 2. That's the the background there. There's a date set by the father. The child is not going to receive any of the promised inheritance until he reaches that date. Look at verse 3 with me. So also we, that's how we know that Paul's using verses one and two to teach us something. He says, while we were children, we're enslaved under the elemental things of the world. What does that mean? Well, that means simply this. In the context of the book of Galatians, the elemental things of the world very likely refers to trying to be justified by the law, since that's what the Galatians were trying to do. Look at chapter three, verse one or verse two, rather, Paul says, this is the only thing I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Verse three, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? They're trying to use the law as a means of justification. And so that's very likely in context what elemental things means here. But this, this, cannot, this cannot work, as we've already established. And so why is Paul saying that we were enslaved? It doesn't seem like we're enslaved. Well, because of what I've told you already. We have been held accountable since our birth to be proper image bearers of the Lord God Almighty. And therefore, we are under the law and enslaved to its legal demands. Our legal status before God is guilty, sentenced, without any hope of being let free. No bail, no nothing. And so Paul's making a point that just like the child who has the same legal rights as a slave, even though he's the owner of the state, that's how we are if we're under the law. Verse four, 
Speaking of the date set of the father, here's what he says. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those, that's you and me, who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Our adoption as sons completely changes our legal status before God. No longer are you enslaved. No longer are you condemned. No longer are you guilty. Now, if you're in Christ and his spirit dwells in you, you are free. You are redeemed. And you are considered innocent under the law. This is good news. This is good news. What grace, what blessing Christ has accomplished for us. The main point is this. Sinful rebels can be made into sons through adoption by God's grace. This blessing of adoption only comes by God's grace through faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. Non-believer in the room, let me speak to you. Non-believer in the room, are you able to humble yourself, confess your sin, and repent from it, and turn from your idols to this grace that has been evidenced by the shedding of blood for undeserving, guilty sinners? Are you able to do that? Have you wandered in here today wondering what Jesus Christ is all about? What is this Christianity thing all about? Is it about building big churches? Is it, is it a, no, it's about saving sinners unto the glory of God. It's about redemption. And we are redeemed through adoption. You can only be reconciled to the holy God through this way. Now, for believers, for believers, let's turn to Romans chapter 8. We still need to flesh this out a bit more. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. What does this mean for us? What does our adoption mean? We're now considered by the holy God as sons and daughters, but what about his law? What, what, does, what bearing does this have on my life? So often you hear, from the antinomians, it doesn't have any bearing on your life at all. You are free to do whatever you want. And if that sounds absurd to you, just study church history. It's not absurd to a whole lot of people. <laughs> we need to know what the answer is to this question. What bearing does the law of God have on the life of a son or daughter of the Lord Jesus Christ? Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
a few observations. Number one, we have not been freed from the law as it exists. We are freed from, as verse one says, the condemnation that is produced because of sin under the law. Very important distinction to make. We are freed from the condemnation. This is good news. Remember, I am not preaching salvation by works. That is not what I'm saying. I am saying the law of God has bearing on our lives, and that's what we're looking at. That's the first observation. We're freed from the condemnation. The second observation is this. The law of God could not perfect, nor can it ever perfect, any flesh. It can only do the two things for which it was given. It can be a strict disciplinarian, and it can guide you to Christ. It can be a strict disciplinarian, and it can guide you to Christ. And the law is God's means, this is the third observation, whereby he drives the elect to receive his unmerited mercy. That's what the law does. That's the bearing it has on our life. It drives us to God's mercy. It always is meant to do that. Your Christian life is not about you getting saved and then working really hard to keep your favored status with God. That was the error the Galatians were making. But it produces sort of like guardrails for you. When you get outside the revealed will of God, when you get outside of his law, you're violating his law because it exists because he exists. Here's the big difference. You're not condemned for those violations. You are disciplined for those violations. You see? As a good father disciplines his child, so does the Lord God Almighty discipline those whom he loves. It provides guardrails for us. And we have assurance that we've been saved. Again, it's not based on our performance. It goes much deeper than that. Look at, um, well, first look at Romans 8, 9. Again, let me just preface it this way. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. He does not belong to Christ. Go back to Galatians chapter 4 now. And let's look at our assurance that stems from our adoption, our assurance of salvation, this, pr this priceless and treasured possession called assurance of salvation. You know, I've met Christians, genuinely saved people, who really struggle with their assurance of salvation. And it produces an unstable life. Uh, when you struggle with whether or not you feel saved or don't feel saved, that's going to produce a very unstable life. You need to hear this, Christian, in the room. If you're struggling with that, which I, I assume some of you probably are, your assurance is not based on your performance. It's based on whether or not the Spirit of God dwells in you. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. And because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The indwelling spirit assures our conscience that there is no condemnation for us. It assures us because we can trust that what Christ has accomplished is enough. It is enough. The law, when you violate it as a son or daughter, where is it supposed to drive you? Back to Christ. That's how you know. It does have a bearing on your life, not to condemn you, to drive you back to the source of your salvation. 
You're no longer a child who, whose legal rights are just like that of a slave. You've been freed. And this is really where the confusion lies. Does this freedom that the Spirit of God has purchased for us mean that the law just has no bearing on our life? This is truly where the confusion lies. So let's look at Galatians 5 as Paul defines what this freedom looks like practically. Bless you. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, outline the effect of the Spirit in our lives. Verses 1 through 4, and there's going to be other ones that we'll look at. It says this, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. That's what I started this sermon by saying. Verse 4, you have been severed from Christ. You who are being justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Believer, if you've been taught that your salvation depends on you, that's a lie straight from the pit of hell. Your salvation doesn't, it's not because you earned it, and it's not going to be kept by you because you live according to God's law. If you want that, you will sever yourself from the benefit of Christ. You may not lose your salvation if you're truly saved, but you will lose that blessed assurance, that blessed assurance, your most prized asset on the spiritual balance sheet, the thing that once you have it, never, ever let anything get in between you and it. Second Corinthians 5.21. If we're trying to be justified by the law, it's a yoke of slavery. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. Should be up on the screen. If it's not, just remember it. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What does this mean? This means that every sin you've ever done, past, present, future, the, the entire object and reality of sin, God placed that on Jesus Christ and crushed him for you and I, for all who would believe. He treated Christ as he was supposed to treat us, the sinner. And he did that so that you and I might be made right with God. He did that so that we might receive the promise inheritance, as Paul says in Galatians. Look at Galatians 3, 13 through 14 with me. Paul explains what I've tried to just say. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Christ is our righteousness. And when we sin, when we violate God's law as his sons and daughters, we must appeal to that blood that he shed. 
We must go back to the source. That's what the law was meant to do, to pull you down to your knees and beg God for forgiveness as a believer, to ask God for cleansing. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Condition is, if we confess. Father, I have violated your law. God, please cleanse me from that. Oh, Lord, I thank you, God, that your blood has covered me. I thank you, God, that there is no condemnation for me because of what Christ has done. That should be your response as a son or daughter. That should be your response as a son or daughter. Let's look at Galatians 5 as we start to land this plane here. Galatians 5, verses 13 through 14, really define for us what the relation of the believer is to the law. And it, it puts it in a whole new set of language almost. Read with me verses 13 through 14, chapter five, Galatians. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Did you guys catch that in verse 14? The whole what is fulfilled? The whole law is fulfilled. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Like I said earlier, when we looked at the first and second table of the law in Deuteronomy, we must love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we must love people as we would love ourselves. Love is the fulfillment of the law. The law hasn't gone anywhere. Love just fulfills it. And this is very important to understand as you turn with me to Ezekiel. It's very important to understand this, that love as God defines it is actually impossible without his spirit dwelling within you. You can't just will yourself to love God and love other people. You need God in order to love God. If you don't believe me, you need to turn to Ezekiel. Let's start at verse 11, or chapter 11. Chapter 11 in the book of Ezekiel, looking at verses 19 through 20, say this, and I will give them one heart and give within them a new spirit. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. And then they will be my people and I shall be their God. What we see here is clearly we need a, a new heart. We need a new spirit. That dead, cold, lifeless heart of stone must be removed, surgically taken out, and in its place must come a living, beating heart. We must go from death to life. Look at Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel chapter 36 gives us more clarity as to what this new spirit will consist of. Looking at verses 26 through 27, he says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes 
and you will be careful to do my judgments. You see, it's very important to understand, going back to Galatians now, it's very important to understand that this freedom that Paul is talking about in his New Testament writings is not a freedom from the law. It's freedom from the penalty, the condemnation of the law that comes from sin. It's very important to understand that God's righteous character, his moral reality, his moral nature, does have a bearing on my life and on your life. We don't derive our salvation from whether or not we keep it. We simply express acceptable worship within the boundaries of it. And when we get outside those boundaries, the law is meant to drive us to Christ as it always has been. And thus, keep us dependent upon the mercy and grace of God, not prideful. So that's what we've been freed from. We are freed from the legal demands in terms of justification before God. But we are not freed as if the law has no bearing on our lives. And it's interesting to see how the apostle describes this law. In um, <clears throat> Galatians 6, turn with me to Galatians 6, verse 2. He calls this, this, this mode of living by the Spirit, which he outlines in the rest of Galatians 5, he calls it the law of Christ in verse two of chapter six, bearing one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are now free to obey God by observing uh, the law of Christ. James describes it. Turn with me to James, if you will. James describes it in chapter one of his epistle, starting in verse 22 and following as the royal law, the law of freedom, the perfect law depending on your translation. Verse 22 and following in James 1 say this, but become doers of the law and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he looked at himself and has gone away, he immediately forgot what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at, here it is, the perfect law, the law of freedom and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man will be blessed in all he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious while not bridling his tongue, but deceiving his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. In other words, if you think you're righteous and yet your words contradict that claim and your thoughts contradict that claim and your actions contradict that claim, if you think you're righteous Measure yourself according to the law of God. If you're there, good. That means you are loving God and loving your neighbor as you ought to. Just look at James chapter two. He says the same type of thing in James chapter two, verse eight and following. If, however, you are fulfilling, here it is, the royal law, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. In verse 12, he says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. The law has a purpose, and it has a bearing on our lives as believers, not a salvific purpose, but a purpose that pertains really to sanctification, our walking in Christ-likeness, staying in those boundaries of God's law, just like Adam in the garden. Adam, you are free as long as you stay in the boundaries. 
don't transgress or trespass that line that I have drawn in front of that tree. Those are the boundaries, and you are free in these boundaries. And the point of this final section is that the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit is what empowers believers to live according to God's law. If we didn't have the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't be able to do this. And Ephesians 5.1, for example, that says, be imitators of God as beloved children would just be nonsense. It would be nonsense. And so now that believers have been adopted into God's family, we are free from the condemnation of the law. Let us rejoice in this today, family of God. And if you do not know Christ, I call you to account now. Right now is the time of salvation. The, the gospel has been unfolded for you, and it is laid bare. We are about to come to the table of the Lord. If you have not professed faith in Christ, if you have not said the same thing about your sin that God has said about your sin, I implore you, I urge you, do it now. Do it now and receive the free gift of salvation by grace. Let's pray.